0: Luke chapter 15 and verses 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet And bring the fattened calf and kill it And let us eat and celebrate For this my son was dead and is alive again He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate Now his older son was in the field And as he came and drew near to the house He heard music and dancing And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant And he said to him Your brother has come And your father has killed the fattened calf "'because he has received him back safe and sound. "'But he was angry and refused to go in. "'His father came out and entreated him. "'But he answered his father, "'Look, these many years I have served you, "'and I never disobeyed your command, "'yet you never gave me a young goat "'that I might celebrate with my friends. "'But when the son of yours came "'who has devoured your property with prostitutes, "'you killed the fattened calf for him. "'And he said to him, "'Son, you are always with me, "'and all that is mine is yours.' It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. So this is uh, one of Jesus' most famous and influential parables. And uh, for those who who may not know, we've been doing a series on the parables. And and so this is one that I've been looking forward to for, for quite some time. So I'm very thankful that you're here today, and I hope that this will be a blessing to you. But uh, this is, like I said, one of, one of Jesus' most famous ones. It's one that even if you really don't know a lot about the parables, you probably have heard of this one. There's a good chance you've heard at least of this parable. Um, this, this story has had a big impact, especially in the arts. Um, it influenced even Shakespeare. Um, it led to one of Rembrandt's most iconic paintings. Uh, and it's certainly one of the most emotionally touching that Jesus tells, if not the most emotionally touching. You know, the image of the father joyfully welcoming back his, his son, it touches our hearts. And I think for most people, that image is basically the point of the story, right? Essentially, the story tells us that God welcomes us back no matter how lost we are. That's why it's known as the prodigal son. Uh, even the title shows that we think about the story as primarily about the son who ran off. Now, I don't want to say that that's not important. It is incredibly important. It's a very important part of the story. But I actually think that's not the primary focus of the parable. The emphasis of the parable is really not so much on the youngest son as on the oldest. And I believe the main purpose of the parable is really, in fact, to offer us an invitation. Through this parable, Jesus, he's telling us what his kingdom is about. And he's inviting us to celebrate with him in it. So, today I want to lead us to that purpose by considering three messages that we see in this parable. So, there's three messages here that we'll be thinking about today. The first message is there are two ways to rebel. The second message is God's grace is absurdly generous. And the third message is God is inviting us to a celebration. So, two ways to rebel God's absurdly generous grace and God's invitation. So, first, two ways to rebel. So I think most people reading this story think that really only the younger son is rebellious. But if we actually think about the story a little bit, we're going to see that in fact both sons were rebellious. Now, for those who may remember the uh, story uh, or the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18, you may think that, okay, this is kind of the same message as that, right? Now, in that parable, we saw that both the Pharisee and the tax collector were sinners, and that's true. Okay? The tax collector's sin was moral sin. You know, he had done the kind of typical things we think of as sin. Uh, and the Pharisee's sin was self-righteousness. He thought he was so much better and righteous on his own. And both of those elements do show up in this parable as well, but there's actually an important distinction in this particular parable. In this parable, Jesus focuses on the heart. It's not just about the specific sins that are committed, but about the origin of that sin. It's about what led to those particular sins. Now, to understand this point, I want to take some time to look at each son individually. And, of course, we'll start here with the youngest. So, on the surface, there's two major things the younger, son, uh, the younger son does that are rebellious. First, the younger son demands his inheritance while his father is still alive. Now, in first century Jewish culture, this was not just rebellious, but this was shameful. Now, obviously, you typically receive an inheritance after Someone has died. After the father has died. So to demand your inheritance while he's still alive is basically the same as saying, I want you dead. What you have is more, it's better for me that I have what you have rather than that you be alive. So even if the younger son planned to use the money well, right? Let's say he was like, I'm going to invest this. I'm going to, you know, do really well with this. It still would have been extraordinarily insulting. Uh, this demand, it shames everyone. It, in shame, it shames the son, of course, but it also brings shame upon the father and upon his whole family. So just the demand itself was reason enough for the father to disown his son and for him to be rejected by the community at large. And that's typically what would have happened. The people hearing Jesus' parable here Never would have seen a father react the way the father does in this parable. That's not what would have happened. What probably would have happened is the father would have driven the son out of the home, beating him, slapping him, saying, get out of here, you know, you good for nothing kind of thing. Like, that's, how, that's what the typical response would have been. Because of the amount of shame and dishonor he was bringing on his family. Okay, so just the demand itself would have brought that in most cases. But on top of all of that, the son then goes and squanders that inheritance. Right? So he takes that, and he just totally blows through it. Instead of investing it, using it wisely in any way, he uses it on partying and on prostitutes. So not only has he insulted his father, but he has now taken this inheritance, which his father worked hard for over many years, right? Many, many years he's worked hard to build this up, and he's just blown it, completely wasted it. He blows through all of it, there's nothing left, and he's left in an awful state because of his own wickedness, which, of course, then adds even more shame to the family. Anybody who knows what's happened to him, if you've heard anything like that, now they're thinking, man, just look you know how bad this is. And again, just shame upon shame that he's adding here. Now, that's how he rebelled on the surface. That's kind of the surface-level thing. But what we need to realize when reading this parable is that that's not, I think, really his primary rebellion. There's more to his sin than that. Now, of course, these are certainly acts of rebellion, uh, rebellion against the father, rebellion against society, rebellion against God. Yes, obviously all of that is true. But the primary problem with the younger son is his attitude towards his father. That's the real issue at play here. He resented his father's authority, and he resented his father himself. But he didn't resent his father's possessions. Right? He didn't want his father's authority over him. He didn't want to have anything to do with his father, but he wanted what his father had. So put simply, we would say he wanted his father's things, but not his father himself. And this is his true rebellion, the rejection of the father himself, right? The rejection of their relationship. That is what leads to all the other rebellious acts. That's the primary, the primary issue here. That's the foundation of it all. The rejection of the father and the desire to be in control over everything leads to all the other sins. That is the heart of the prodigal son's rebellion. But this parable shows us that, to our surprise, this same heart was also in the older son. <laughs> look at how the elder son reacts in verse 28. The father is celebrating the younger son's return, right? That's exciting. He's, he's happy. There's all the celebration. And the elder son is angry and won't even go in. Now, on one hand, he says, look what I've done. Look how good I've been, and you never did any of this for me. You've never done anything like this for me, right? It's like you give him the fattened calf, But you haven't even given me a goat, right? You give me nothing, despite all the things I've done for you. But on the other hand, he also says, look what he did. Look at all the shame and the dishonor he's brought on us, on our family. How could you possibly do this for him, but not for me? So do you see the elder son's problem here? At at the heart, the elder, elder brother actually has the same problem as the younger. In his heart, it's really the same thing. The path they took certainly looks very different, but the heart is actually the same. He resents his father's authority, he resents his father's will, he resents his father himself. He doesn't like his father's character, his gracious character, he doesn't like that. He resents him. Just like the younger brother, his behavior has only been about control and personal benefit. That's what he's been doing it for. He has no interest in a relationship with the father himself. He doesn't care about that relationship. So both the younger brother and the elder brother really just want what the father has to give. They want what the father has. They want his blessings, his treasure, but they don't want him. The younger brother seeks after personal happiness, but he does so by liberation, right? Freeing himself from his father's authority, living as he pleases. So he's saying, I want to be happy. I deserve to be happy. And to do that, I need to be free from my father's authority. The older brother seeks after personal happiness by working hard, right? He also wants personal happiness. He's also looking out for himself. He never disobeys. He carefully keeps his duties, but again, it's about what he's going to get from it. But neither brother actually desires a relationship with the father. They want material blessings. They want control, but not the father. Now notice that it's not just the younger son, by the way, who is outside here. The younger son is outside, far away. The older son is outside nearby. But both are outside. Both have separated themselves from their father. Both have abandoned their father in their own unique ways. And so this parable teaches us that there's actually two ways to rebel against God. Okay? And we might call those two ways moral rebellion and moralistic rebellion. Okay? Moral rebellion and moralistic rebellion. Moral rebellion says, you know, I'm going I'm to get control by rejecting God's commands. Moral rebellion wants control by rejecting God's command. So it says, I'm I'm in control. No one has the right to be over me. No one has the right to tell me what I should do or what I shouldn't do. I should be able to do what I want, when I want, how I want. And the result, as we see here, of course, is separation from God. It's a disastrous route that leaves the individual cut off from the true community he was built for, from the true joy and happiness that, that the person was built for. So it leads to disaster. But moralistic rebellion also seeks control, but this version seeks control by obeying God's commands. Now, I'm sure that sounds strange at first, okay? So I want to clarify something here, um, and this is very important. I am not saying that obeying God is rebellious. That That's ridiculous, right? That would be a ridiculous thing. What I am saying, though, is that it's easy for obedience to become a way to try to take control over our lives and over God. Obedience can become a way in which we try to manipulate God and basically be in control over our own lives. It's very easy for us to think that if I obey God, then he owes me. He owes me, right? He owes me good things. He owes me a good life. He owes me material blessings. Or at the very least, he owes me heaven when I die. He owes me because I've done everything right. So yes, there is obedience, certainly. But just like moral rebellion, the motivation is control. It's really manipulation is the idea, right? It's kind of, uh, we were talking about this after our Japanese worship this morning. And I brought up the example of, like, Sarah, let's say that I really wanted to buy, like, some really expensive, nice TV or something like that, okay? And I know Sarah's absolutely going to say no. No way. There's no way we're going to buy that TV. So what I do is I say, okay, this week I'm going to be, like, super nice to her. I'm going to, like, do clean up the whole house I make sure she has time. I'm going to go buy, like, Starbucks, bring her something, you know, some coffee, make sure she has some time, you know, by herself. I'm going to just be, like, do everything, and then at the end of the week, I'm like, so, honey, you know, I really like that, this TV. Like, obviously, I did all these nice things for her. I did everything she wanted me to do, but my heart was totally selfish. It had nothing to do with her. It wasn't out of love for her. It wasn't out of my desire for a better relationship with her. It had nothing to do with her. It had only to do with me. It was manipulation. It was control. It was about what I could get from the, from the transaction, right? That's what I was looking for. And so that's what moralistic rebellion does. The central motivation is not God himself. It's not from a heart that loves God. It's not from a heart that trusts him. It's not from the joy of his kingdom or the joy of the Lord. The motivation is actually independence. It's control. It's manipulation. It's self-salvation. Saving myself. I'm in control. Now again, I'm not saying that everyone who wants to obey God is actually rebelling, obviously. But it is very easy to treat obedience as a means of control. Of saving myself. And that is what both the younger and the older brother in this parable have in common. The younger brother rejected his father so that he could get his father's things. The elder brother obeyed his father so that he could get his father's things. But neither brother actually wanted a relationship with the father himself. Neither of them actually loved the father. And we know, by the way, that Jesus is addressing this, that it is in fact the older brother who is the primary concern, because that is how this series of parables starts off. Okay? So if you go back to the very beginning of chapter 15, you'll see that the prodigal, the prodigal son is actually part of a series of parables that Jesus tells. And it starts with the lost sheep. Okay? So it starts with the parable of the lost sheep and then with the lost coin. And then it goes into the prodigal son. But all of this begins in verses 1 and 2. And the Pharisees, there, the Pharisees and the scribes, they complain, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And these parables are all a response to that complaint. So when Jesus comes to this parable, his primary target is not the sinners he's eating with, although they may be included, but in fact it is the Pharisees and the scribes who are complaining. That's who he's talking to. He's telling them, you are the elder son. He's trying to talk to them about their reaction, and he's also trying to show them what is happening in his kingdom. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom. He's saying, the kingdom has come. It's here. It's among you right now. Here it is. And this is what it looks like, and you guys are complaining about it. You see, he's directing it at the elder son. And so he's telling them, yes, you're right, absolutely, these people have rebelled. But so have you. You too have not sought the father. You too want to be in control. You want his gifts, but not he himself. As Jesus says elsewhere, you honor him with your lips, but your heart is far from him. And this leads to the second message of this parable. God is abundantly gracious. God's abundant graciousness. To understand the Father's grace in this story, we actually need to think a little bit about the the context of what's happening here. So respect towards parents in Jesus' time and culture was of extreme importance. Now this is kind of hard for us, I think, in modern times to understand. We're kind of used to kids sort of being just really rude, kind of talking back to their parents and just, you know, that kind of stuff. We sort of maybe give kids a little bit more leeway in some things. But under the law of Moses, rebellious sons could actually be stoned. Okay? They could be stoned for being rebellious. And in some places in, in Jesus' time, neglecting parents could even be punished by imprisonment. So if you didn't take care of your parents when you needed to, that could be, you could be imprisoned for that. But as we have seen, the younger son did both. The younger son has done both of these things. The younger son took, took a large portion of what his father had prepared for the future. So his father had all this stuff, and he had prepared some of this for his old age, and the younger son has taken some of that and then totally abandoned his family responsibilities. He said, I don't, I don't care about all that. I will only care about myself. But then, of course, he's openly rebelled against his whole family. And he's brought that dishonor and that shame that we were talking about. And this, by the way, isn't just a private affair. We shouldn't think that this was something that was just kind of kept, you know, hush-hush within the family. This is something that more than likely a whole community knew about. Everyone would have known what would have happened here. Especially with this man being as well off as he apparently is. He's probably kind of the the patriarch of this community, or certainly high up in in that realm. So this is something everybody would have known about. So this is something that has brought shame and dishonor upon the whole family in a public way. And all the more reason it would have been easy for the father to disown his son in order to defend that honor. That's why I say that would have been the normal course. That's normally what people would have done. In order to defend the family's honor, he would have disowned his son. But the father does two things that show extraordinary grace to his son. The first one is that the father honors this demand. Instead of disowning him to defend his honor, he simply gives him his portion. Now, our natural reaction, right, when somebody insults you, what, what do we want to do? I'm going to, you know, insult him back and give him more of it, right? <laughs> and just add a little on top of that. Or maybe we try to lower that person's value in our mind, right? Like, that person's just an idiot Like, they're kind of a moron, so who cares what they have to say? That's sort of the way that we we deal with things, because we don't want it to hurt so bad. But this father accepts the shame and the hurt out of love for his son. He takes that shame, he takes that insult, and he accepts it out of love. But secondly, when the son returns, he celebrates. But this isn't just normal celebration, okay? He's not just feeling happy. The father goes to extremes in his celebration to a point that we might say was reckless almost it's just kind of crazy how far he goes now first of all the father runs to his son when we see him and, and for us that might seem normal like okay he's excited to see him he runs out like you know we can kind of imagine somebody showing up at an airport um you know especially now with the pandemic you might say like finally somebody's come in and i get to see them and you kind of like run up to him that's normal but this was actually very uncommon in first century culture because you have to remember these these people are wearing robes his father would have worn a robe and so in order to run without tripping and you know, falling on his face, he's got to lift up that robe, and that's showing his legs, and that's something that would have actually been very embarrassing at the time for especially the patriarch of a community to be doing, to be running around the road, lifting up his robe, looking like a little three-year-old you know, running down the street. It would have been kind of an embarrassing thing for him. Um, but that's what he does, and he rug, uh, runs, and he hugs, and he kisses his son. And then when the son starts to recite his speech, so he's had this whole speech recited, he's like, this is what I'm going to say to my dad. The father doesn't even let him finish. Notice that. He doesn't actually get to finish his speech. The father interrupts him and immediately starts doing what? Lavishing gifts. Lavishing honor upon his son. He interrupts him so that he can honor him. He doesn't wait for his son to grovel at his feet. He doesn't wait for his son to make restitution. He gives him the best robe. And this, by the way, is probably the father's own robe. He gives him a ring. He gives him shoes, which is the father's way of showing This son, he is fully accepted back into our family. He is not an outsider. He is home. He is a son. He is not a servant. He is my son. He then kills the fattened calf. And this, again, is something that you would only do for major celebrations. Um, This isn't just like a good home-cooked meal. This is more like a communal festival feast with friends and family all invited to participate and, and to join in on these celebrations. And so the father is so overjoyed at his son's return, that no expense is too big. Money is absolutely no object. He simply wants to celebrate the return of his son. And that is, is the beautiful image of the immense grace of God that he gives to us when we return to him. Like the son, our sin and our shame is no match for the father's grace. He isn't waiting for us to make things right first, to kind of carry out our you know, clever plans about how we can earn his grace, because we can't. Instead, like the Father clothed his Son in his own robe, so God, our Father, clothes us in the righteousness of Jesus. There's no sin, there is no shame that the Father's grace cannot cover. God is not stingy with his grace, he pours it out in abundance. However, the younger son is not the only one who needs his Father's grace. This is something we need to understand. It's not just the younger son who needs his Father's grace. The younger son is not the only one who dishonored his father. By refusing to enter the feast that his father is throwing, the elder son is also bringing public shame on the father. Because remember, this is the community. Other people are here, they're gathered together. So, you know, imagine, for example, imagine Sarah invited you over to our house for like uh, the American Thanksgiving meal. Okay, so she's done all this stuff, she's prepared this big meal, she's invited you over. And then you get there, and I'm sitting outside, and I refuse to go in because there's somebody there that I don't want to eat with, right? I'm just like, I'm not going in there. Um, that's going to be embarrassing for her. It's going to be awkward for you, um, and it's going to be insulting to everybody, right? Now, I'm just sitting outside being like, I'm not going in until they're gone. That's like, kind of like what the sun is doing, but it's much more so because of the culture at the time. This was a huge insult and dishonor to everyone, but also, like I said, to the father. But just like the father loves the younger son, so he also loves the older. You know, sometimes, I think it's kind of easy for us in modern culture to sort of be like, okay, I can give grace to those who have sort of fallen away, who've had all these sort of problems in their lives, these moral problems. But when it comes to like the super conservative people, the really kind of strict people, we're like, I I can't have grace for them. Now, some people might feel oppositely, but I think in modern culture, oftentimes that's how we feel. But God doesn't do that. He says, I've got grace for all. I've got grace for both sides. So he doesn't go out screaming at him. Get in here. You're embarrassing me. Um, I mean, that's what what I would do, right? (laughs) Like, what are you doing out there? Get in here. Are you kidding me? But instead, he goes out himself. He pleads with him to come into the party because his brother has returned home. He doesn't guilt him. He doesn't shame him. He invites him. He invites him to come in and experience that joy with everyone else. And this leads us to our third and final point, that God is inviting us to a celebration. And this is a vital point to understand if we want to understand the kingdom of God. Okay, the kingdom of God is frequently represented through celebration, through a feast. That, that's what we see. Now, we, we tend to think of this parable, typically, we kind of see it as a contrast between the two sons. So we see it as sort of the contrast between the uh, older brother and the younger brother the rebellious, you know, younger child and the carefully obedient oldest child. But actually, this parable is more of a contrast between the eldest son and the father. Now, the eldest son, I think, probably represents most of us in certain ways. That's how most of us would respond, right? Um, Many of us wouldn't even let the youngest son return. When he comes back, we be like, nope, get out of here. Turn back around, go down the street. You're not welcome here. But even if they did allow him back in... They would certainly, certainly expect groveling and restitution. You better be on your knees begging for my forgiveness. And even if, even if somehow the younger son was able to repay everything, we would still make sure to bring up that failure again and again and again, right? You're never letting that one go. Never. Down the road, you know, he's paid it all off. You know, it's, it's 30 years down the road. And, you know, he's done something again. And you're like, do you remember when you did that? Right? That's how, that's how we're going to be. That's, that's the kind of people we are. His sin would become a weapon in our hands for the rest of his life. But the Father, of course, represents our Heavenly Father. And the Father doesn't even let the Son finish laying out his plan. He immediately rejoices and pours out gifts and celebration. The Son isn't just accepted, he is honored. He's honored. The Father doesn't even bring up what had happened. There's no hint that he expects restitution or some change of status. Like, okay, you know, you're coming in, but you're kind of like a, you know half son or something like that. No, there's none of that. The son is simply welcomed in. All is forgiven. All the guilt, all the shame removed. The thing is though, when we think about sin and forgiveness, we, we think about it this way not just with other people. Like we're not just the eldest son with towards others, although we often are. But one of the reasons we're that way with others is because we're that way with ourselves. Right? We're that way towards ourselves. We would never do this to others, right? That 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 the father The idea that God would allow me to come back after sinning without groveling, without wallowing in my sorrow and my shame and my guilt for at least some time. That he would simply forgive me as soon as I come back. It's almost unthinkable. Again, we would never do that. That's not how we would do it. So we expect God to treat us the same way. We feel like, again, we have to wallow in that sorrow and that shame so that we can kind of like somehow earn back God's, God's grace. But this parable shows us that just like Isaiah said, God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Yeah, I I would hold a grudge. I would make them pay, at least with tears and, and remorse. But that is not the grace and mercy of God. The grace and mercy of God celebrates the return of the lost son. And just like the father invited both sons to enter into his celebration, he invites us also to enter the celebration in joy. First, he invites us with open arms, and we're the younger son. When we've gone off to that far country, you know, we've wandered far from God, we've, we've separated ourselves from, from the family of God and from the Father himself. When we return, God welcomes us in with open arms. He celebrates our return. He doesn't need our clever plans to get back into his good graces because he himself is the giver of grace and he gives it lavishly, abundantly, recklessly, freely in a way that is going to seem just almost insane to us that somebody would do that. No matter what sin you have committed, no matter how long you have been gone, when you return to the Father, he is waiting to welcome you back home. And the thing is, it is truly home. This is not you know, some, some foreign place. This isn't a hotel. This is home. You have a home with God. You're not truly an outsider, but a child. And he wants you to come back home with him. But he also invites us when we are the elder son, when we're harsh and angry and bitter about all the things we think that we deserve, all the things we think, why hasn't God given this to me? Why? why? I mean, look at this person over here. Look look what's going on in their lives. Look at all the bad things they've done, and look how successful they are. Look how many blessings they have. And here I am, I've served you all these years, and you're going to let this happen to me? You're going to let this happen to my family? When we feel that way, when we're really just using the Father for what we want out of life, and when we look at others and say, man, they've done too much wrong, they haven't groveled enough, they're not repenting the right way, and so on and so forth, the Father comes out to us not screaming, not berating, not angry, but in love calling us to come in and enjoy the feast. And that, again, is what ultimately this parable is really about. It is an invitation to us. It's an invitation to come to the feast. That is why the parable ends with no response from the older brother, no resolution. We aren't told what happens. Does the older brother come in and join the celebration? Does he stay outside? Who knows. We aren't told. But that's because this isn't just a story. It isn't just a story with you know, a moral that was trying to teach us. It's a question, and it's an invitation. It's an invitation to come to truly know the Father, to experience his deep love and grace, and to let that deep love and grace transform our hearts. This is another thing we were talking about this morning. Until I have experienced that deep grace of God, until I have truly understood the extent of the mercy that undeservedly he pours out to me, I will never have a heart that is transformed. The gospel has to reach deep down and then it will change my life so that now the things that I do are no longer duty, no longer I have to do this, but a choice freely made because I have experienced that grace. And that's what God is inviting us to do, to come to know him, to come to have that relationship with him so that it changes us from the inside, that it changes the way we respond. You know, when when I kind of realized I was falling in love with Sarah and that I wanted to be with her, that changed my perspective towards other women. I wasn't like, well, you know, I kind of like her, but, you know, I think I'm going to go check out these girls too. Like, once I kind of realized that, especially at the point where I was like, I, I want to marry her, you know, I'm, I'm buying a, a ring. And, I mean, I didn't have much money at the time, but I used all the money that I had to buy her the <laughs> ring, you know, um, because I saw the value that I found in her. And she, that, that love... The experience of of what she brought into my life changed me from the inside. And that's what God wants us to have with him. He wants us to see his love. He wants us to see who he is, his character, and for that to change us from the inside. And that's what the kingdom is about. It's about God calling people home to be in his family, to enjoy his love, to enjoy his joy, to actually enjoy it. There's a celebration, and he wants us to be in there and be a part of it. And so the question is for us, will we come to the Father? Will we come to the feast? Will we enjoy the celebration? Or will we stay far off in a distant land, alone in our sin and our squalor? Or will we sit maybe just outside, angry at God for what we think we deserve? He's inviting us in. Now I think many of us probably understand both brothers, but maybe we resonate with one in particular, right? Maybe one of, there's one that we're like, man, that one, yeah, that, that's me. Now many of us know what it's like to wander far from God, far from his home, far from him, living a life of rebellion because we want to be in control. But many of us also know what it's like to think of how good and righteous you are, right? About how hard we work, about all the good that we've done for God. And so to the first person, to the younger brothers among us, this parable says you are never too far from home. The image of the father putting the robe on the son, it is a beautiful image of exactly what happens in Baptism. Paul says in Galatians 3 that when we're baptized into Christ, we put on Christ. It's like clothing. It's like putting on Christ like we put on clothes. And so that baptism is God's way of wrapping us in the righteousness of Jesus. It's not our works. It's his. It's totally his. He's wrapping us in the righteousness of Jesus so that our evil deeds, our evil works, are wrapped in his righteousness and we are now made pure through him. So when we come to God in faith, he clothes us in the very righteousness of Jesus himself. But to the second person, to the older brothers among us, the parable is a reminder of how much rebellion we have in our own hearts as well. But even to us, the parable is an invitation to come in and celebrate. The joy isn't just for those who have wandered far from home. It's for those who have stayed close as well, but maybe still for selfish reasons, maybe just, again, about control. The parable is God's invitation to us to come in and enjoy not just his blessing, but he himself, to enjoy a relationship with him, Come enjoy all the beauty of his grace and his mercy and his love. And because this is an invitation to us, it is an invitation to all. This parable really has important implications for the mission of the church. When we think about what the job of the church is, what we're supposed to be doing, if God is opening his home to us, if he's opening his home and his feast to me, to anyone who returns, Right? if he's welcoming both the younger and the older sons among us, if he's welcoming both those far off and those near, then we are to be extending that invitation to others as well. We aren't just telling people, obey God. Right? I mean, yes, we should be obeying God, but that's not what we're telling. What we're really telling people is inviting them to come and join that celebration. We're saying, come into God's kingdom. There is joy, there is celebration. There are good things here. Let's come in and enjoy that now. We're telling them, you're invited. That's really it. You're invited. You're invited to be a part of his kingdom now. A lot of times we think of God's kingdom as you know, going to heaven. The kingdom of heaven is when I go to heaven, when I die. But the kingdom of heaven is here now, and it came through Jesus. And that kingdom exists right now, and he's inviting us in now. That is his kingdom. And so it's not just something for the future, but it's also something here today. It's available to us today. And so that's something that we have to keep in mind as we're talking to other people, that we're inviting them to experience that joy. I mean, a taste of it. Yes, it's not coming in its fullness. Yes, we're still waiting for the consummation of that kingdom, for the, the full coming of the king, for him to make everything right, to make all things new. Yes, we are looking for that day. But it's still here already in a meaningful way. And we're inviting people to come in and join them Through Jesus Christ... Every one of us is invited to enjoy the celebration feast of God's kingdom. We're invited not just to enjoy his grace, but to enjoy God himself, our creator, the creator of all things. His grace is overflowing. His mercy is abundant. And he erases not just our debt, but our, sh- our, our, our shame as well. He takes our shame even from us and says, you don't have to hold on to that anymore. Even that you are freed from. In God's kingdom, there is music. There is dancing and if we'll receive the invitation we can join him as well. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we thank you so much for being the kind of father that you are to us. We are rebellious in our own ways often in many ways. We're rebellious in that we want control. We want to be in control of our own lives. We want to be in control even over you. We think that we know better in so many different ways. Father, help us to see who you are. Help us to see you truly as you are, as a merciful and gracious Father who loves us. And Father, I pray that that love would transform our hearts. Father, we struggle to be gracious and merciful to other people around us. And I think, Father, it's because we don't really understand your grace and your mercy to us ourselves. So I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to that truth so that we can be gracious to those around us, even those who are abusive and mean, that we can still show love. But Father, also help, I ask you would help us to have our hearts changed, not just how we treat other people, but even how we respond to you in our own lives. That we would not see your commandments, your desires for us as burdens, but as joys, because we know the person who they come from. So Father, I pray that you would help us to see that, help us to understand that, so that we live our lives not simply out of duty, but out of free choice knowing how good you are to us. Father, we're so grateful for your love and your your blessings to us, for that abundant mercy that you pour out to us. Thank you for that, Father. We know it is only through Jesus that we have that, and we're so grateful for what you've done for us through him. I pray that you would help us to know that in our hearts and walk in that grace and mercy throughout the coming week.